Heads and welcome to American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner here, as always, with my friend and comrade Derek Davison, and we are here to bring you the news. Derek, let's just jump right in. And could you give us an update about what's going on in Israel? And for people who might not know, we released a special on Israel and the protests earlier in this week with Israel Desk member Udi Greenberg, soul member. So, Derek, uh, maybe you could give us an update on what's happened since then. Uh, sure. Uh, people are not. Uh aware of what's been going on. Uh, of course, Benjamin Netanyahu and his cabinet have been trying to uh, pass a, uh, what Udi refers to as a judicial, judicial coup. Uh, it's really judicial. Uh, that's not a bad term for it, really. A judicial overhaul uh, that would drastically weaken the power of the Israeli judiciary. This has generated quite a bit of opposition uh, in Israel uh, over the weekend. Even Netanyahu's defense minister, Yoav Gallant, uh, suggested that Netanyahu might want to pull back on the throttle and, and put call a pause to, to this process. Netanyahu then fired him. Uh, this generated uh, bigger, even bigger protests uh, than Israel had been already been seeing, along with strikes and uh, business boycotts, all kinds of uh, just mass outpouring of opposition, uh, to which Netanyahu on Monday uh, decided to pause uh, the judicial reform <clears throat> in his legislative agenda until at least the next session of the Israeli Knesset, which doesn't start until late April. At this point, uh, he, on Tuesday, his, his cabinet uh, met with uh, members of a couple of the opposition parties, or his representatives met with the members of the couple, couple of opposition parties, Yeshatid and the National Unity Party, uh, to begin to to see if they can find some common ground on a compromise judicial reform package uh, that would win opposition uh, support and presumably you know, would not generate the same level of public opposition. There's no reason to think that's going to be successful. I don't know what the common ground would be. And if it's not successful, then the question is, what does Netanyahu do? And I suspect the answer is that he will simply bring back the same reform package. That's what he appears to have told the more extremist members of his cabinet who are very supportive uh, of the judicial overhaul and have been uh, a little angry, at, frankly, at, at his decision to, to pause it. Um, if he brings it back, then there are all sorts of questions like, uh, is this protest movement going to be able to, to pull itself back together at that point with all these disparate parts, big business, unions, you know, the general public, the middle class, army, military reservists, another uh, important part of this coalition. Is that going to be able to kind of reform uh, and resume pressuring Netanyahu in the way that it has been? Uh, the other question is whether or not he has he's going to have the votes at that point to pass it. Uh, Gallant, the latest word on Gallant is that he may actually be allowed to keep his job as defense minister uh, if he apologizes to Netanyahu, which is just seems ridiculous to me, but whatever. Uh, <clears throat> but there is a question then, uh, you know, as to whether any other members of the coalition on the more, uh, let's say, not quite extreme right end of the coalition, uh, members of Netanyahu's own Likud party, for example, uh, might resist uh, bringing back this 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 overhaul plan in its entirety. 
the other factor here of note is uh, the effect that this is all having uh, rhetorically, at least on the uh, U.S.-Israel relationship. Uh, Joe Biden was asked uh, on Tuesday uh, what he thought about Netanyahu's decision to to pause consideration of the overhaul plan. Uh, and he told reporters that he hopes Netanyahu, I'm quoting here, walks away from uh, the plan completely. Uh, he also denied a report that had been in the New York Times earlier in the day on Tuesday that uh, he was about to invite Netanyahu to the White House. This is something that hasn't happened, although Netanyahu has been back in office for four months now. He still hasn't gotten an invite. It's, it's a little embarrassing for him. Uh, so the thinking was, I guess, that we're going to give him a pat on the head for, for pausing this legislation and invite him. Biden has apparently not done that. He was uh, very uh, forceful in telling reporters that he has not done that. And he doesn't see and he doesn't envision inviting Netanyahu to the White House in the near term. So in response to all of this, Netanyahu went on a bit of a Twitter rant uh, and released a statement that said, uh, it concluded by saying, uh, quote, Israel is a sovereign country which makes its decisions by the will of its people and not based on pressures from abroad, including from the best of friends, end quote. A number of the, again, more extremist Members of his cabinet were a bit harsher in, in uh, insisting that the U.S. butt out of Israeli politics. Uh, I, they still want the military aid, though, of course, keep that coming. You know, there's no substantive change in the relationship, but uh, where this is interesting uh, is that it's another, it can be another cudgel for opposition leaders in Israel to kind of uh, go after Netanyahu, who is suddenly quite vulnerable. He's, his popularity has gone down. His, uh, you know, coalition's popularity, public support has gone down uh, amid all these protests and the opposition to the judicial plan. So it's another thing they can try to hit him with uh, and say, you know, look, he's damaging the relationship with the United States. Now, uh, Netanyahu, barring anything unforeseen, doesn't have to uh, go back to the voters until 2027 and he may not even want to at that point he's uh 73 so you know he may he's well he's past retirement age already uh he may not really want to run again so it's unclear how much uh, of an effect this kind of political attack could have on him but uh nevertheless it's uh you know something to watch i suppose in read netanyahu it's an obvious consequence of the uh, association he began building specifically with the republican party which was always a, a foolish move so let's move on to north korea and what uh, kim is doing with regards to nuclear material yes so uh, kim jong-un uh, had a meeting according to state media on tuesday with uh, officials who are involved in, in North Korea's nuclear weapons program and ordered them to pursue what he called an exponential increase in the available weapons-grade material that North Korea has to, to produce nuclear weapons. So that uh, we always like to hear, hear that. That's great. Uh, the more weapons-grade material, the better, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, the, what's, what I think is more interesting is the photos that, uh, again, this was through state media, that they released of this meeting appeared to show Kim inspecting uh, a number of devices that look like something called the Hwasan 31, which is a still hypothetical weapon, uh, but would be if it's ever, if it, if or when it comes, actually comes online, uh, would be North Korea's first tactical nuclear device. Now, when I say coming online, that it would require a nuclear test of some kind. It would require, as well, specifically, it would require testing a lower yield tactical, smaller tactical warhead, which is something the North Koreans have not yet done. 
uh, at least as far as anybody can tell. And you can you can tell when they've conducted a, a nuclear weapons detonation. There are obvious physical ramifications from that 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 are impossible to hide. Uh, so there's no evidence that they've actually conducted that test. Uh, but they, North Korea watchers have been talking for months now uh, about the possibility of a new nuclear test. There are preparations that have been going on at uh, their nuclear testing site. So it, it, it seems like they've been gearing up for some kind of nuclear test at some point, and it stands to reason that it would be uh, of a device like this that could be loaded onto uh, an artillery shell or a short-range rocket. Um, Kim views this as... Uh, a a big goal for his nuclear deterrence program because these are the kind of weapons that could be used in a second strike even if your kind of larger strategic uh, weapons were, were were to be let's say taken out in a first strike by the United States uh, these these weapons there could still be you know possibility of a nuclear retaliation and that's uh, where the deterrence comes in then so so this is definitely a goal of his. Uh, something that I would expect at some point. Again, I, I sort of already would have expected them uh, to have conducted this test, but but I think it's definitely still in the planning stages. Thanks, Derek. Uh, let's move on to Russia, Ukraine, and let's start with Russia possibly placing nukes in Belarus. So this was an announcement that came over the weekend. Vladimir Putin uh, said that he and Belarusian President Alexander Lukashenko uh, had cut a deal to place Russian tactical nuclear warheads in Belarus. Uh, again, we like, love to see it, love to see as many nukes uh, in as many places as possible. Uh, the plan, th- this has been uh, underway for some time now. The way Putin revealed it, it was, I think he w- was sort of meant to convey the sense that he just kind of decided to do this uh, on the spur of the moment in response to things that have been going on in Ukraine. Uh, but it's clear that they've been planning this for some time now. He, he, they're they're uh, expecting to have a storage facility ready in Belarus to house these tactical nuclear weapons by July 1st. So that they've obviously been, uh, you know, working on this for some time. Uh, the nukes would, of course, remain under Russian control. He's not giving nuclear weapons to Belarus, but this is, and, and this is a, a structure that is akin to arrangements that the United States has had in the past, uh, with other NATO member states, uh, not so much since the end of the Cold War, but certainly during the Cold War, uh, stationing U.S. weapons. And there are still some U.S. weapons on uh, the territory of other NATO countries. Turkey would be the big one that would come to mind, but they're not, uh, you know, their their deployment status is, is probably not, uh, you know, as high as, as these nukes in Belarus would would presumably be. Um, I, I haven't heard anything from Lukashenko. I, I imagine he views these... Uh, this positively, I, I mean, he doesn't really have a lot of a uh, lot of sway in that relationship anymore. He doesn't really have a lot of leverage uh, to dictate anything to Putin. But I would imagine he's not too uh, bereft about the idea of Russian nukes on Belarusian soil because it's also a deterrent against uh, any possible action against Belarus. So I'm, I'm sure he's uh, he'd be okay with it on that level. Um, as you might imagine, there was some criticism. The international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons uh, condemned the announcement. NATO, of course, uh, you know, condemned the announcement for whatever that's worth. Uh, the United States was a little more circumspect. They they were quick to note that uh, kind of switched the topic uh, to the possibility of Russia using a tactical nuke in Ukraine, which which there's still no evidence that they're uh, planning to do that. So uh, they didn't really seem to. 
uh, want to respond directly to the, the Belarus thing. So let's move on now to New Start and what the U.S. has, uh, how the U.S. has responded to these various moves. Uh, yes. Yeah, so people uh, may may be aware that last month Putin announced that Russia was suspending part of New Start, which is the only extant nuclear arms control treaty, specifically the part about inspections. He wants to he wanted to suspend the inspections. Uh, the argument here is that travel restrictions from the U.S. Uh, and Western countries have made it impossible for Russian inspectors to go overseas, basically, to conduct any inspections. The, the treaty does give Russia the right to inspect U.S. nuclear arsenals and U.S. the r- right to uh, suspend Russian nuclear arsenals. So, you know, if you can't get your inspectors uh, to the other country, then there's no, not really any way to do that. So he decided to suspend that part of the treaty. Uh, what the U.S. has done, uh, announced on Tuesday, is that it's decided in response to that to scrap another part of the treaty. There is another requirement to twice a year uh, for each country to provide the other with data on its nuclear arsenal. The U.S. has decided to stop doing that. This is, you know, basically wadding up another part of the treaty, although the Biden administration portrayed it as an effort to try to pressure Putin into coming back into compliance with the entire thing. Uh, I suspect that's not going to happen. Now, there are other parts of the treaty that are still active. It's sort of in tatters at this point, but there are obligations to, for example, inform the other party if there is any change in the disposition uh, of nuclear forces or any nuclear tests or uh, ballistic missile tests. Uh, the, both countries say they're still going to going to continue fulfilling those obligations. But uh, yeah, this is uh, this is a treaty that has pretty much been uh, stripped to the the bones at this point. Thanks, Derek. Uh, let's talk about Bakhmut in Ukraine. Yes, uh, the situation in Ukraine uh, is uh, still kind of difficult to assess. Uh, The Ukrainians have for several days been claiming that the front line in Bakhmut and in the east had stabilized. There was no no way to confirm that, but then, you know, also no way to kind of contradict that, although there had been Russian claims to the contrary. Uh, It now uh, emerges, uh, or emerged on Wednesday, I guess, that Ukrainian officials finally were acknowledging that Russian forces have been gaining some ground in Bakhmut. And now they say uh, on Thursday, they said uh, about a third of the city uh, is still in Ukrainian hands, but two thirds uh, are now under Russian control. I have not seen any uh, evidence of major shifts in territory in any other parts of the front line, although the Russians still are pressuring other areas in the east. And then there's, there's, of course, the talk about some big spring counteroffensive by the Ukrainians that, to my knowledge, has not yet uh, not yet materialized, and there's not even really any good indication uh, where they might be targeting. They haven't started kind of uh, focusing on any particular area of the front line with artillery or any any of the things that you might expect to see uh, in advance of a, a major offensive. So it's it's still. Mostly frozen, but there does seem to have been a little bit of movement, at least in Bakhmut, uh, in recent days. Thanks, Derek. Uh, can you give us an update on what's going on in France? Yeah, this is very sad, actually. I mean, people, we talked last week about the protests over the pension reform project. Um, I, I'm sorry to say that that those protests forced the indefinite postponement of 
uh, King Charles's visit to France this week. It was supposed to happen earlier this week, and he just decided to skip it and go to Germany instead. It's uh, terrible. He was supposed to go to Jesus Germany Christ. after, and I just, you terrible. know, I just want to say I hope, I hope all these people are satisfied with themselves and what they've done here to not just King Charles, who's an innocent victim in all of this, but to France, really, uh, which is not going to get to enjoy his his presence. And I just wanted to, you know, get that off my chest. Thanks, Hopefully, Derek. you know, our thoughts and prayers go out to the people of France that they'll be able to recover from this uh, this disaster. But uh, I don't know. I, I don't know. It doesn't look good. And this is actually, uh, Derek, thank you for pointing this out because uh, we're going to take this time to announce that we're adding a new program to our slate and we're going to do an hour and a half of royal updates each week. So everyone, uh, please look out for that. Uh, Derek, let's move on to Colombia and what's going on with the ALN attack there. Uh, yes, this is uh, actually bad news, unlike the, the, the thing we just talked about. Uh, the National Liberation Army, or ELN, which has been, uh, as people are uh, aware, in negotiations with Gustavo Petro's government, uh, the centerpiece, really, of Petro's uh, effort to kind of uh, bring an end to as many of the uh, Colombian government's conflicts with various armed groups uh, as possible, uh, the ELN is the largest active rebel group in Colombia, and and that's that negotiation is sort of the uh, the biggest of the the negotiations he's got going on. Well, uh, the bad news is for on, on a number of fronts, uh, ELN rebels reportedly attacked a Colombian military unit in, near the Venezuelan border on Wednesday. I I don't know if that's been confirmed. I mean, the attack has presumably been confirmed. Nine soldiers were killed. Uh, I don't know if it's been confirmed that this was ELN fighters, but Petro at least seems convinced that it was. Uh, he's called a meeting of his uh, negotiating team along with representatives of the countries that have been serving as guarantors in the talks with ELN. So uh, Mexico, Venezuela, uh, a couple of other Chile, I think Cuba probably will be involved. Uh, and, and, you know, he could decide to, to suspend talks at this point. I mean, these were always, these negotiations are always contingent on, uh, you know, neither side uh, taking advantage of any lull in hostilities. There, there was no ceasefire in place yet, uh, with the ELN. So, uh, you know, they didn't break a- any commitments, but they were close to a ceasefire reportedly after the last round of talks in Mexico. There's going to be a third round. Uh, in Cuba at some point where they were, you know, basically the, the goal there would have been to put the finishing touches on a ceasefire. Uh, so they were close to something like that. And, and this, this could be a major setback in that process, which would, uh, again, I think not be good for, uh, the Colombian people and, and, uh, you know, certainly for Petro's, uh, agenda here of trying to, to end all these conflicts. Uh, so yeah, not, not great news. Let's talk about an event we haven't yet been invited to, and that is the Summit for Democracy. I got invited. You didn't get invited to the Summit for Democracy? God damn it, must, Jake. Cut this out. It's humiliating. Must recognize that my commitment to democracy is uh, superior to yours, I suppose. Uh, now, the, the, the United States hosted the second, well, co-hosted, there was a couple of other countries, Costa Rica, the Netherlands, South Korea, and Zambia, that co-hosted the second Summit for Democracy. This is... Uh, Joe Biden's promised to hold a bunch of these, I guess, uh, for however long he's president uh, as part of his battle against the great war of our time against authoritarianism. You know, they're, they're, they're silly. They're, they don't accomplish anything. They're just sort of 
meant to burnish the United States image. And I don't even think they do a very good job of that because you can sort of, uh, the, the cynicism inherent in these things is, uh, is fairly obvious. The biggest, uh, deal or the biggest thing that, that anybody pays attention to out of these things is, uh, sort of who gets snubbed, who doesn't get to go Hungary and Turkey, uh, are the ones that have been talked about the most often in this time They they were, uh, not invited. So they're, they're off the democracy list, uh, I guess. Yeah, I don't think anything substantive has been accomplished other than Biden announcing uh, or pl- pledging uh, $690 million uh, for democracy programs, whatever that means. Uh, this is, of course, a minor mostly rounding error in the Pentagon budget. Out. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, it's, it's probably mostly like, uh, you know, uh, all the wonderful programming that the U.S. government brings you uh not this podcast sadly although if somebody wants to give me a call from from the state department we could certainly have a have a discussion we're definitely uh, about, open to about fi- getting a chunk of that money uh into the the american prestige bank account so you know that's that's it i just wanted to note that this was happening i don't think it's worth spending any more time talking about it because it's kind of a uh, the definition of a dog and pony show uh, but it's, you know, it is happening. Let's move on to our final range of topics, and that concerns the new Cold War. New Cold War. Uh, okay, so there's a number of things here. Um, uh, just a follow-up on something we talked about uh, some time ago. The Honduran government on Sunday formally broke diplomatic ties with uh, Taiwan and opened them with, with mainland China. Uh, the foreign minister of Honduras, Eduardo Enrique Reina, was in uh, Beijing to sign paperwork with Xin Gong, the foreign minister of China, uh, where they, you know, made it all formal and official. Uh, the Taiwanese government lashed out at Honduras, accusing them of basically selling uh, Honduran diplomatic recognition to whichever country offered, you know, a, a bigger aid package. Uh, I guess that's supposed to be criticism. I don't. I, I think that's just doing your job, frankly. If you're the Honduran government, you got to get the best deal that you can. But uh, this does leave Taiwan now officially with 13 countries uh, that still recognize it diplomatically. Um, so, you know, they're 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 down to the last few hangers on, I suppose. We should have James back to talk about how this all affected it. Um, sorry, let's yeah, move on now to Saudi investment yeah, in Chinese companies. So. Uh, so, you know, another story that's kind of been churning in the background here has been Saudi Arabia's shift toward China, I guess. I mean, they're, they're, they're in a position, they're in a pretty advantageous position where they can also, uh, to a much bigger degree, kind of play the superpowers off against each other. They can play China and, and the U.S. off against each other. And they, uh, Aramco, uh, the Saudi oil giant, announced a couple of big new investments in China uh, in recent days, uh, $3.6 billion investment in a Chinese petrochemical firm, uh, a deal to build a new refinery uh, in northeastern China uh, through another project that Aramco already owns about a third of. Um, so, you know, the, the economic ties are growing. And then the, the other news of the week, uh, on Wednesday, the cabinet, the Saudi cabinet, a meet, meeting that was chaired by King Salman, uh, agreed to advance to a partnership stage with the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, which is a uh, eight, soon to be nine, Iran will be joining at some point, uh, but uh, currently eight member uh, group includes China, Russia, Central Asian uh, countries, India, Pakistan. 
Uh, it's it's basically led by China, and it's sort of a economic slash uh, security cooperation block. Uh, you know, everybody sort of agrees to to help each other out. The Saudis have uh, agreed to become uh, what's called a dialogue partner uh, with the SCO, which is uh, one stage below observer status, and then observer status is the next stage before you. Uh, become a full member. So they're on some kind of a membership uh, track at this point. Again, I don't, it, it's not like they're, they're turning uh, their backs entirely on the U S the U S is still, uh, especially if you're going to talk about security, the U S is still Saudi Arabia's number one arms provider. And that's a relationship that's still somewhat locked, locked in uh, because the Saudis use weapons platforms that can't really be interchanged with Chinese parts or Chinese weapons or anything like that. So there's not, they're not shifting that business to China uh, or that relationship to China. But uh, it is another indication that they're uh, trying to balance uh, relationships with the U.S. and China in ways that I think uh, work to their advantage as they, they can kind of force everybody to, to compete to offer them the best, uh, best arrangement. Thanks, Derek. And let's conclude on a final topic by returning to uh, the subject of U.S.-Taiwan relations. Uh, yes, just again, by way of an update, Tsai Ing-wen, the president of Taiwan, we talked about this, um, I, I can't remember if it was last week or uh, the week before, she has now arrived in the United States. She arrived in New York City on Wednesday uh, for a stopover uh, on her way to Central America, put stopover in quotes, uh, because... Taiwanese presidents uh, traditionally make these lengthy stopovers in the U.S. Uh, as they're on their way to countries in Latin America that still recognize Taiwan diplomatically. The stopovers are really visits. I mean, they're official working trips uh, to the U.S. that are labeled stopovers because of the sensitivity vis-a-vis uh, -vis Beijing and the, the, the concerns about what kind of uh, blowback might emerge if the Taiwanese president were just to say, yeah, I'm visiting the U.S. on an official trip. That's, you know, that that's uh, would not sit terribly well. Uh, this trip has, of course, generated a lot of news because of the possibility that Tsai may meet uh, with U.S. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy during her second stopover, I believe, which will be in California as she is en route back from Central America to Taiwan. Uh, this is almost certainly going to happen, but nobody's said anything official about it uh, yet. McCarthy is anxious to, uh, you know, show that he's uh, defying China, just like Nancy Pelosi did when she visited Taiwan last year. And Tsai uh, undoubtedly wants to cultivate a relationship with the new Speaker of the House, uh, although she probably would prefer to do it in California, where the chances of serious blowback are somewhat less than if McCarthy were to make his own trip to Taiwan. It remains to be seen. The Chinese uh, government has said it will retaliate for any, you know, any major kind of meetings that U.S. government officials have with Tsai while she's in the U.S. It always says this, you know, anytime a Taiwanese president makes one of these trips, uh, and you, you don't know how serious uh, that retaliation will be until it actually happens. There will probably be something uh, I don't think it will rise to the level of the uh, economic sanctions and uh, military provocations that, that China engaged in uh, over the Pelosi visit, uh, but we'll have to wait and see what, uh, what they actually do. 
Derek, thank you so much for bringing us the news and everyone keep your eyes out for a special we have this Sunday or really just our bonus episode where I'll be having a debate about fascism with the philosopher Jason Stanley from Yale. Uh, And until then, we'll see you all soon. Bye. Bye. Bye.